Hey everyone, Ward here. It is the end of another work week in Texas, and I am going to talk through some of the things that happened this week. So, big news today, the unemployment rate fell from fell to 13.3% today. That means 2.5 million jobs were in May, and I'll be honest, I don't know what it fell from. But it is at 13.3, which is a significant drop from last week. That means a lot of people are going back to work, and a lot of people are off the unemployment lines. Some some of the thoughts about that, you know, it's interesting how many factors there are that should be headwinds for unemployment going down right now. You know, obvious ones are social distancing, COVID-19. A lot of states don't even have... They, they aren't open barely at all. I mean, if you go to New York, California, places like that, here in Texas, it, it is pretty open, but it's not completely open by any means. You know, my wife and I are going to dinner tonight, and I think they're still at 50, maybe they're at 75% capacity, um, but it, it just goes to show that there is a significant amount of hiring that's still going on, you know, all across the country for how little we are open. Um, I would expect as, as, you know, as, as businesses op- get back and, and the country reopens, you know, you will see that continue to fall, that, that unemployment rate. Now, the, the problem is, is it's not going to get back to where it was before because there's a lot of businesses that just completely have gone under and that aren't coming back. Um, you know, so that's a real... Uh, you know, real tragedy in all of this is there's a lot of business owners who, um, you know, are, are just finished and they're not hiring anyone because their businesses don't exist anymore. I've got a lot of friends. I'm sure you listening have got a lot of friends where that's the case. So that's just the real tragedy that's kind of gone on in all of this. Um, one of the things that, you know, think about in all of that is how unique it is kind of state by state what's going on um that that brings in you know just philosophically one of the things i think that's so important in america is we retain our sense of federalism meaning you know each state controls its destiny rather than thing having everything dictated from washington i mean i'm sure you saw you know president trump doing all those press conferences and you know relying on his experts and and whatnot but the reality is is the appropriate solution for you know a pandemic um you know uh, even even recovery from economic events like that is really to have each state do it on its own because they're all so different there was an article you know published in the wall street journal on uh when was this may 29th federalism makes america's pandemic response unique and there's a uh, a picture of Governor Abbott on the front sitting with President Trump. And President Trump was, you know, real uh, complimentary of Governor Abbott's approach to everything. Um, you know, given though that I'll question whether Texas really needed to shut down in the first place, given our statistics, uh, you know, I, I think you get the ben- give Governor Abbott the benefit of the doubt that at the time, if you'll go back with me to, you know, late February, early March, it was a really scary time, and I don't think anyone knew exactly what was going on. But you know, Texas, in retrospect, 
you know, I, I don't think shutting down was appropriate, although certainly doing something with our elderly community in nursing homes would have been appropriate because that's, that's where a, a lot of the COVID uh, deaths happened. Um, you know, one of the things we always do that the article mentions is we always compare ourselves to other nations, but, you know, the, the proper testing is state by state in America, you know, is, is what Texas did having less restrictive lockdowns appropriate? Well, I, you know, I would think so given our economic results and, you know, I, I think Governor Abbott's pro-business approach to things is overall the correct way of handling things. I'm from California originally and, you know, we're only, what, three years removed from California. We moved here in 2017. I mean, I could not imagine being there right now where it's shut down. They're telling you, you know, you can't go outside, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, That's just a non-starter to me. So it shows how important it is in the U.S. There's so many different states and so many different approaches that, you know, this is a good chance for everyone to reflect on, you know, what's your philosophy and which state matches up to that. And if you're not in that state or a state that's at least fairly similar, you know, it's really a time to consider moving, especially if you are out of work and, you know, you, or you lost a business or something like that. That's definitely something you you got to think about at this point, given, you know, the various states' reactions to COVID. Um, Interestingly enough is, so he says that the most striking feature of the U.S. data is a remarkable ranges across the states. Listen to this. Among the 10 most populous states, New York has the highest death rate at over 1,500 per million residents. And that makes sense that they're the highest, right? Texas is the lowest with 55. So 1,500 New York to 55 in Texas. A lot of factors for that, obviously, right? You know, New York, that state, most of their deaths are condensed into New York City where it's just so populated that it's hard to, it's easy rather for a disease like this to spread, especially amongst nursing homes. And there were policies, I don't want to get into politics and stuff like that, but, you know, there were policies that probably contributed to that. You know, 55 in Texas per million residents is so low. Um, a, a lot of that's where big states spread out, even in, even in, you know, Dallas and, and, and Houston. I mean, if you think about it, I haven't spent a ton of time there, but I've been there a bunch. It's not as condensed as New York by any means, even though those are gigantic cities. So, you know, this shows that the need for a state by state response to something like this in the future and also to economic conditions in the future. Because Texas, you know, one of the things we're dealing with in, in Texas is with the with the federal unemployment benefits, especially with the six hundred dollar a month kicker, businesses are having a hard time hiring and they need especially those lower income wage earners. And, you know, for those lower income wage earners, it might be great right now to be getting the extra 600 bucks a month not to work, but what happens at the end of this in six months? I mean, given these recovery numbers, you're going to have a lot of people who've been out of work for six months who are then trying to get back in the workforce when it's going to be a tight tight work, uh, a low unemployment environment again, and those people are going to be really behind the eight ball. Um, so I, I think the federal approach to this just doesn't make sense, and you know, Texas 
could have handled it itself. And if other states felt like they could want to do six hundred bucks a month, by all means, you know, go ahead and do it. And I know you know you could argue, well, the U.S. has the ability to print money, and the other states don't. And that's true. I mean, that that a lot of states would have got them in trouble with their benefits, but a lot of states get themselves in trouble anyway. I mean, there were a lot of states that were asking for federal bailouts and you know my response is that that that's ridiculous that doesn't make any sense at all manage your state the way you want to manage it if it stands up great if it fails you know everyone else can learn from you but the idea that the federal government would bail out states from their own mess states issue bonds those bonds are bought by investors and those investors should suffer you know if a state goes bankrupt and can't pay its bills it, it goes bankrupt. It, it can then still collect tax revenue from its residents and, and kind of reset and start things over. So just an interesting, uh, interesting perspective. All right, let's, let's get into some Texas uh, articles that I, that I got uh, this, uh, this week. Here's something I, I, I thought was interesting. So this is a, an article on Kendra Scott, and I, I don't wear jewelry, but that great great company for for buying your your spouse jewelry if you're a if you're a guy um i i i've always thought she had a really fantastic company it's amazing like her growth story um and she's giving kind of advice in this on or or being interviewed about curbside pickup and other pandemic business strategies because they they would have just reopened at least in texas but you know, as a nationwide retailer, there's pl- plenty of states that are in where they still aren't open. So you know, they're shifting to do this curbside pickup and model in in a lot of states. And it's interesting. This is a microcosm of retail over the last, I mean, really two decades. So everyone talks about Amazon and you know how much they've hurt, you know, in-person retail. I think it's just completely changed, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. So, you know, if you think about Kendra Scott, you know, what what does she do? She she, or what does her company do? They they make jewelry, they design it, they source the materials, they have it manufactured, or I don't know if they manufacture it in their own plants or just have it manufactured or how they do that, but they create a product and they sell it directly to the end user. How is that different than a lot of, of, of retailers? Well, let's compare them to JCPenney's, which is, is just closing a lot of stores. You know, JCPenney's, they buy stuff from a lot of different clothing companies and, and jewelers and, and shoe manufacturers, and then they bring it all in their store. They're relying on you to go in their store to buy their stuff. Well, now a lot of their stuff you can get on Amazon delivered right to your home. You know, what is Kendra Scott? What what's different about that? Well, they control the product, and I'm I, I I do an Amazon search. I don't know. I don't feel like doing it right now, but I doubt there's Kendra Scott products on Amazon. And if they are, they're probably products that they want to unload. They have a product where you either have to go to their store or order it from them in order to get it. And I think. That's the important part of retail going forward is, you know, retailers, they're going to have a lot of competition if you're going to be a, a let's face it, a middleman, right? Like that's what JCPenney's is. They, they're a middleman between the customer and 
the brand that they want to buy. Kendra Scott is, you know, a her own product and there's no middleman. And I'm sure she may have distributors like somewhat, but her having her own stores, you know, people have to go to her stores or order online to get it. And that's a huge thing. And I think that's something where you're going to see that more from companies going forward. Here's here's another example. So the the Statesman published an article about Tacova's um, a year after opening its first retail store, Austin-based boot maker Tacova's has raised 15 million according to a securities filing. So Tacova's I I first saw them I think when I still lived in San Diego, so probably like late 2016 early 2017 and if you're familiar with them what they did at the beginning was it was strictly Facebook ads. They would they would pound you with Facebook ads and I get them all the time presumably from stuff I like like I like a lot of country music, you know, hunting websites like or or Facebook pages, stuff like that. So, you know, presumably I'm a mark for cowboy boots and I got a, you know, Facebook ad for Facebook ad, a Facebook ad and that was their whole kind of strategy at the beginning. Well, you know, fast forward, they have a so first of all, when I first got those ads, you know, the idea of buying a boot online was just ridiculous to me. Um, you know, but I did buy one pair of Tacovas initially and I ordered, you know, size ten and a half and they fit just fine. And I ordered another and another. I ended up ordering three pairs. One pair, the black pair I got, didn't didn't end up fitting. It rubbed me funny, so I sold those. But the other two fit fine, and I wear them now. You know, now I like, I like Lucchese's, just to be honest with you. So I, that's what I buy now. But I, I, I got a couple pairs of Tacovas that are still in my rotation of, of boots that I wear. And the point for them is, okay, they started out selling. It, it originally was like three boots, meaning one one style of boot that was in three colors and then they did three different boot styles it was these calfskin ones i have and then i think they did ostrich and um cayman i think if i remember right and they did them each in three colors now they've expanded to a ton of different boots they expanded to belts they do wallets they do um like uh, travel bags a ton of stuff and that's a company where they now have opened their own stores and like, look, you go to a Tacova store because if you want to try on a pair of Tacova boots, that's where you have to do it, right? Like, and it, it, if you live in Austin, I think they have one in the Woodlands now. It, it's great if you want Tacovas because you can try them on first, which is a, is a huge ad, advantage. But they built their company on these Facebook ads selling direct to customers so that when they opened their own store, they had a brand. Everyone knows who they are, especially in Austin. And, you know, they can go ahead and open their own store and drive traffic to it. It's a huge advantage. And I think, you know, retailers, not just clothing, but other stuff, I think that's the way it's going to go. I, you know, on my Facebook feed now, I've noticed a bunch of different companies. Texas Standards, another one for, they, they started with um, shirts, but they do a lot of different stuff now. I imagine they're going to open their own stores eventually. Um, Poncho is like a, a, um, uh, for for like fishing, one of those one of those uh, I don't know G and G makes them that I don't know what you would call them and what material they are, 
but they're they're for like outdoors summer when it's hot fishing type shirts poncho i haven't bought one of theirs yet but i probably will here pretty soon i think that's the model going forward for retail so it's it's really interesting but interesting story about uh you know kendra scott amazing company so you know i told you earlier about the uh you know, unemployment numbers fell, you know, dramatically, um, you know, just to go back to that, uh, I had this up on my computer. Let me see if I can pull it up. Stock market went up significantly today. Stock market, by the way, is back to 85% of its all-time highs, or I'm sorry, not its all-time high, but it's high in uh, February, February before it started dropping due to COVID. So it went up 2.62% just today, the S&P 500. Um, you know, the reality is, is there's a lot of, you know, confidence in the, in the U.S. market anyway going into the future. But one of the things you always got to realize about the stock market, because everyone looks at, especially the S&P 500, for how are we doing as a country. But... It's not reality, you know. As, as as I read that job number, there there's, it's certain industries where you know the the recoveries are happening, and um, you know one of the ones where it's not happening and probably isn't going to happen anytime soon is the oil industry. So you know you look at West Texas, and they are going to be have be hurting for a while. Um, here's an article. Chris Adams from May 26 for the Reform Austin, which uh, I didn't know much about this, but it's kind of an interesting article. So the COVID-19 pandemic has triggered several crises and perhaps the most colossal aftershock is the impact on the oil industry and the people who depend on it to put food on their table. A global oil gut and pandemic-induced reduction in demand have made life difficult for many Texans, including those who call West Texas oil patch home. Texas is the most prominent victim of the crisis-created oil bust. That is a an understatement. I mean, the sheer volume of jobs that were lost. I read somewhere earlier today that it was like 30,000 in West Texas so far. Um, listen to this. As of May 15th, the oil rig count in the Lone Star State was 150, down from 485, 485 rigs a year ago according to a global energy tech company, Baker Hughes. The price of uh, West Texas crude was $63.17 on May 20th, 2019. That's not historically high, but it's, it's at a price where it's profitable to, to, to produce. On May 21st, 2020, it was $33.92 a barrel. So you know, basically cut in half. And Bloomberg estimated that the required price per barrel for permanent basin oil producers to break even would be 47 bucks, stating that if the low prices remain, steady operators will struggle to survive and the fallout will affect the greater economy. So, you know, I think as the economy recovers, it'll go up from 33. And certainly it's great right at the, at the oil pump because gas is cheap right now. But, you know, there's those folks in the oil industry are getting just really, really crushed from this. So while the, uh, the rate of, um, while, while the economy is recovering and the rate of unemployment is down, 
you know, it's important to remember that those global statistics don't tell the underlying stories for, for certain people. So, you know, interesting. Hopefully, hopefully that recovers for the oil folks in West Texas or all over Texas here, here soon. Here, here's an interesting thing in Texas that, you know, when the pandemic came out, the Texas Supreme Court temporarily eliminated evictions, which, you know, I don't agree with at all. And not, not just because I own, I own rental properties, but, you know, to sit there and, and say that you're going to interfere with private contracts and say they can't be enforced for a time period, you know, people own those rental houses and, you know, I have reserves and, and I kept paying and, and thankfully actually my tenants, I mean, we, we had to reduce rent for, for a month for a couple of our tenants and they're going to catch up throughout the year. But to sit there and say, you just, someone can just stay in the house and you can't evict them, you know, you're, you're creating something where someone is forced to pay on, on behalf of of another. And I know we do that with taxes, but to make it that direct and just to override contracts like that, I think is, is ridiculous. You know, I think, I think one of the things we're facing as Americans is the expectation that the government will come in and help people just way too soon. You know, frankly, people should have reserves to pay a month's rent. You know, people lose their jobs all the time in the real world and you work it out with your landlord or you just say, hey, you know, I got to I got to move out. I lost my job. And, and you work that out as, as individuals to sit there and say, you know, we're just not going to not going to evict people for a few months. That that puts a real strain on on, you know, people who have invested. It, is real, it really discriminates against people who save and invest in, in real estate and I think it was kind of shocking to a lot of people in the real estate industry that that was even on the table. I wouldn't have thought that before this. But here's an um, uh, article, June 4th, uh, again from Reform Austin. Texas judges urged to delay eviction cases. And this is Harris County Judge Lena Hildago asked all 16 Harris County justices of the peace to delay or suspend evictions until late August. So she's a fairly left-wing judge. Um, and I, I mean, for, for judges to go and do that, you know, this is judicial activism as, at its finest, you know, there's no recourse for anyone. I mean, for how, how does that play out if judges say, well, arbitrarily, I'm just going to not hear foreclosure cases? So what, like landlords are supposed to not be able to pay their mortgage or, you know, go into foreclosure over this? Like, how are we just picking tenants over landlords? Um, you know, tenants are often cases not not as financially solvent as landlords, but that's not always the case. And, you know, frankly, people should be able to pay their bills or make alternative arrangements, right? Because if you're in a Say you're in a three thousand dollar a month house in a in a, uh, a a suburban neighborhood, and you're you lose your job or you lose hours, you know maybe you switch to a fifteen hundred dollar rental in a different neighborhood, and that's just a natural thing that happens in recessions all the time. So when we sit there and we try and meddle with these things, and you know really go into overriding contracts, and you know the government being resort the the last resort for people especially on the lower end of the income spectrum i think what we do is we sit there and we 
teach people to not be financially responsible. You know, I'm a big proponent of, you know, not being in debt, having three months worth of, of savings, uh, three months worth of your expenses and savings at minimum, that, that, that's what we should all be doing as citizens. It's just personal responsibility. And to sit there and do this and, you know, say, man, you can't, can't, can't evict people. It sets a really dangerous precedent and is just, just really not, really not good. So the, the Texas Supreme Court has, still has a, uh, it's still, they just ended their moratorium that will end, I'm sorry, that was the CARES Act had a 120-day moratorium. That would be on on a federally insured loans, which is the bulk of them, that and expires on July 25th. Um, so, and, and the Texas Supreme Court, you know, uh, temporarily suspended evictions as well. So once that comes back on July 25th, you know, if you did want to foreclose or evict someone, you still need to give them notice and, and set up a, a hearing. So to sit there and keep pushing this out is, is just ridiculous. And I think we need to, as a society, say, you know, people need to live on their, be able to enter into rental agreements and contract on their own. So what's going to happen is, you know, poor people are going to be shut out because landlords are going to start requiring two months deposits, maybe three months deposits. They're going to want to know, did you make your payments during coronavirus? That's what landlords are naturally going to be asking. And for people who didn't, they're going to have a harder time getting getting uh, rentals in the future. Whereas if you just let this play out, yeah, those people may have run into a tough month or two. But frankly, with the unemployment checks that people got, a lot of them could have still paid their rent. So, you know, just, just a bad precedent, a bad idea to, to, to go. So I read a book, I'm sorry, not a book, a, uh, a article. It's a, it's a review of a book called Cult of Glory by Douglas J. Swanson, who I've actually read before. I read his book on, on Betty, Benny Binion and thought it was pretty good. But he wrote a book, Cult of Glory, which is kind of... I haven't read his book, nor am I going to bother, but it's a book, basically the, the premise, according to this article by Andrew Craybill in the Wall Street Journal, seems to be that, you know, the the Texas Rangers were violent instruments of impression. And this goes, I, I picked this up, or I want to talk about it, not to debate the individual merits, but to talk through kind of what I like to do when I'm reading history is is buy books that were actually published before 1980 for the most part. And the reason is I feel that it takes away a lot of today's perspective and you get a better sense of what actually went on, if that makes sense. So, you know, the, the Texas Rangers, a lot of his point is that, you know, they were extremely violent and committed atrocities towards the Indians and, and the Mexican, uh, the Mexican people. Um, and he's right on one hand, because, you know, the, the Texas Rangers did aggressively pursue, especially Comanches, but other Indian tribes as well into Indian territory, um, you know, offered them no quarter when they found them and, you know, destroyed 
hundreds of, of Indian camps, you know, uh, killed Indians, men, women, and children, just frankly. Um, and then the, on the on the Mexican side, there was a lot of violence at the border, and me- rangers even went across the border, not just for the Mexican-American War, but, you know, as a matter of course, chasing cattle thieves, bandits, etc. Et and, you know, that, that, that all is absolutely true. But in the context of the time, you know, where Texas had just won its freedom from Mexico in the lifetime of these events happening, and Mexico continually at the time trying to regain territory into Texas and um, lead insurrection uh, and just generally cause problems, you know, I don't think that the Texas Rangers were actively going, hey, I'm on a racist mission to destroy this other race. I think they're, they were on a mission to protect and, and, and uh, protect Texans and protect the Texas frontier. I, it gets to the larger point that I don't like modern historians' historians' tendency to read history through the lens of today, if that makes sense, and today's morals and today's customs. You know, today we have standards of war that are much different than that time. And were the Texas Rangers bad by today's standards? I guess you could say that by the standards of the time, they were much better than than other similar forces. I mean, look at, look at, you know, when General Santa Ana raided or, or entered into both uh, Texas and, and Coahuila, you know, the, the Mexican troops committed mass atrocities all over the place. I mean, not just the Alamo and Goliad murdering survivors, you know, but mass rapes, looting, you know, things like that. The Rangers, some of that stuff went on, certainly, a lot of bad apples, but as a whole, it was a much more professional, dedicated force um, you know, you look at Rangers, especially like Rip Ford, um, who's, who's my favorite to read about, or, or Captain Jack Hayes. They, those, those two are the ones that strike me most like uh, Gus, and, uh, Gus and Woodrow Call from Lonesome Dove. Although what's funny is he quotes, in this article, quotes Larry McMurdy, who says, you know, the major... F- oh, sorry. So first of all, Larry McMurdy is writing about the most famous book about the Texas Rangers, published in 1935 by Walter Prescott Webb. It's called Texas Rangers, A Century a Century of Frontier Defense. And I'm actually reading that right now. I got it in a bookstore in Bernie a couple weeks ago. And McMurdy is, he's kind of famous for his attitude of all his books are trying to kind of take away the, the, the myth of the Old West you know, the, the gallant cowboy, you know, riding in to save the day and, you know, imposing the, the truth, which is, you know, racism and things like that. But w- what I would say about McMurdy that he gets right in every book that he reads is he, he writes that stuff. If you read Lonesome Dove, um, you know, heck, Gus and, and, and Woodrow go into Mexico on a raid to steal cattle and horses. And that was just common at the time uh, for both sides to do that to each other. And I don't think it was about ethnic 
you know, racism or something like that. It was just a, a, a animosity between two countries. You know, similar to, you wouldn't sit there and say, you know, that Pakistan and India and the Kashmir district, it's, it's racism. It's, it's animosity between two countries is, is a better way of describing it. But what McMurdy get, always gets right is he, he, he lays all that stuff out there. But what I respect is he also lays out the context of the times. You know, when Gus is going into Blue Duck's camp and, you know, just not, not announcing he's there, he just opens up fire and kills everyone in the camp. Yeah, that's totally against the rules. And, and by today's standards, he would be thrown in jail and, and we'd be, uh, you know, we'd be in an uproar. But the standards at the time were obviously that, well, Blue Duck stole this woman and they were viciously raping her at the time, which was, which was commonplace back then. So I, I always think authors make a gigantic mistake by putting today's standards on yesterday's important historical characters. And, you know, the Texas Rangers, for all the flaws that he could list, you know, were a group that protected a lot of frightened citizens and, you know, opened up the way for Texas to be the state that it is today. And I think they deserve the proper respect. And I think it's disingenuous and just kind of silly virtue signaling to, you know, do what he calls them as as uh, death squads and ethnic cleansing. And, and I think it's so much more nuanced than that, that it's just silly. He also calls them violent instruments of, of rep- repression. And on one hand, true, but especially by today's standards. On the other hand, that repression was enforcing Texas's borders against enemies who would were there not because of racial issues, but because of geographical proximity issues, if that makes sense. And so I think the, you know, the, the leftist postmodernist viewpoint of viewing the Texas Rangers does them a serious discredit. And, you know, as a, as a finishing point, I think you should read Walter Prescott Webb's The Texas Rangers, A Century of Frontier Defense. I'm, I'm reading it right now, and it's long. It's over 550 pages. But it's definitely worth it to get a sense from someone who was interviewing people who did this stuff at the time. And, and also he was, you know, reviewing letters uh, Rangers wrote and correspondence to Rangers and official documents and stuff like that. But it's just a real good, uh, good overview of, of the Rangers that I think is, is worth looking into. So anyway, that's it for, for this week. Hope to... Uh, have a good time this weekend with the family going on the boat tomorrow, uh, out on Lake Travis. Um, and, uh, we'll see you soon.